0: VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients.
1: As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop.
2: Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money. Which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com/slash five APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
3: This is Masters in Business with Barry Reynolds on Bloomberg Radio.
4: I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Spencer Jacob. He is an editor at the Wall Street Journal's Heard on the Street column. Before that, he wrote the Ahead of the Tape column and was the Lex column author for the Financial Times. He just wrote a new book, The Revolution That Wasn't, GameStop, Reddit, and the Fleecing of Small Investors. Spencer Jacob, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you. So, first of all, I really enjoyed the book. I read it on the beach this summer and a couple of weekends. Uh, really reads like a fascinating novel. Um, if it wasn't a work of nonfiction, it could never have been made into a work of fiction because it just
1: wouldn't be believable, would it? It's crazy, right? It's a, it lends itself to a to a book. And I, I knew that right away. When the story began to unfold, I I sent an email. I had a three-quarters written book proposal about something else sitting at home during the pandemic and I wrote an email to the the acquisitions editor at Penguin Random House, a person I don't even know, didn't know then. And when I saw this story begin to unfold, the first article had not been written about it. One of my sons yeah, brought let, it let to me, my let attention. St- you know.
4: Let me stop you and, and just say the book came about... And please, pardon my language, because your sons self-describe themselves as degenerates, apes, and retards. Can you explain (laughs) why a group of people would self-describe themselves that way?
1: So I have three sons, and uh, two of them are are very uh, online. They're all online, but two of them are very online. They are on Reddit all the time, and they were on this uh, forum on Reddit called Wall Street Bets, which was at the epicenter of this story. And the people on this forum, it's an investing forum, but not really an investing forum. There's a different investing forum on, on right. Reddit called R Investing. This is R Wall Street Bets, which is an entirely different
4: Speculative, beast. lots of access to grind, lots of social issues come up. It's not a straight up investing
1: group. No, it's like jackass for finance. That's <laughs> what it is. It's like you know you do crazy stuff on there and you show off crazy stuff and you I don't know if a lot of the crazy stuff actually ever happens because you you can't tell people are using pseudonyms but they were all over that and uh, my oldest boy he's not 23 he was a college senior when this happened came over and he said dad are you going to write something about GameStop and you know so GameStop they're all into video games I've driven them there lots of times they were going there less and less over time, which is a problem with GameStop as a business. It's, you know, Right. It's, it's in a it's mall. An
4: it's it's old school. It's it's the blockbuster
1: of video games. Totally. Totally. That's and that's the problem. That's why it had been losing money for years. That's why that's how it found itself at the center of the story. The book is not really about GameStop and people always ask me about, don't you think this, don't you think that about GameStop? Like, I can talk to you about GameStop, but that's not really the interesting thing here. The interesting thing is this unprecedented thing that made it the most traded security in the world for a while, the most searched term in the world for a while, you know, and from just total obscurity. And um, I said, no, why? You know, and a friend of mine, this kid who I've known since he was, you know, my, as tall as my knee, had, had bought it and uh, had I took a look and I said, well, he's doubled his money in the last two days. Maybe he should sell. They're talking about it on Wall Street Bets. And I've seen this dozens of times before. You know, it's a kind of a flash in the pan. And right. he I really wouldn't hang on too long. And, and what kind of got my attention was he said, no, he's not going to sell. Ever. No, he can't sell. So what do you mean he can't sell? And so- the you know I started reading the board and I was like oh my god they're they're executing a corner on this stock so they all sort of agreed online to buy as much as they could and not sell and then buy options too which forces further buying by options dealers so it was this trap There's this thing that you can't really do as you know Barry like you can't not since, legally not anyway. legally right like you, you and
4: I can't get together and do this but a bunch of anonymous teenagers and and others it wasn't just teenagers. Could talk about it in this venue without real fear of reprisal, because they're a bunch of little guys uh, engaging in some speculative, wishful thinking.
1: That's right. And if you take at that point, there were about 1.9 million people on the forum. By the end of the next month, there were 11 million people. So they, it quadrupled in in four days. The number of people on wow. this forum as it just became people got so excited by it. And so there that the. Those people individually may not have had a lot of money, but they did two things. First of all, there are a lot of them, and right. they all rushed in, in the same way, into the same stocks, especially GameStop. And also, people were telling them, hey, if you want to get real bank for your buck, don't even buy the stock. Buy way out of the money call options right. on the stock. And then the options dealers will have to, basically, as it goes up, they'll have to buy, and they'll buy a lot more than the money that you put down.
4: In, in yeah. professional terms, that's
1: a gamma squeeze. Yes, it's a gamma squeeze. And most of these these kids, well, very few of these kids knew what a gamma squeeze was, but it was all explained there. I was reading all about it on the board. I don't think they were breaking the law because they're talking about it openly. Right, right. This this was no dark conspiracy. So,
4: so let's talk a little bit about Wall Street bets. When it first started to erupt, I think the knee-jerk response, and I'm as guilty as anybody, was how is this any different than... The nineteen nineties and Yahoo message boards and Raging Bull, but there was a, a, a slightly different factor. What made this so different than
1: what we saw thirty years ago? So you've heard it; it's a cliche by now, but it is true, more or less, that the four most dangerous words in investing are "this time is different," right? And that's that's something. I'm, I'm a real student of financial history. I John was
4: Templeton really... very famously said that.
1: Totally, and I I, I went into this. With that echoing in my head, I go into everything. With that echoing in my head, whenever there's a a crash or mania or a panic, that people human psychology is basically unchanged since Paleolithic times, and so the way that that we react to something financially is never good, uh, but it's always very similar. So history rhymes; mm-hmm. it doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. That that's the reason. It's it's the way that our, our brains are, are wired. But this was different. And tell and us tell us what was different about it. The difference is that. Private companies understand psychology, too. They have psychologists who work for them. They have social psychologists who work for them. And the same people who uh, you go into a Vegas casino and there are no clocks on the wall, there are no windows, people are bringing you drinks. Uh, the same people who designed sports gambling apps and things like that designed social media and designed the uh, the brokerage apps that, that these young people were using to access this. And they induced all kinds of. They, they just put the, these speculative tendencies on steroids. Basically, uh, is what they did. Social media and the the investing apps together on the same device on your smartphone being used by the same people along together. Along with along with uh, Wall Street bets and Reddit. So yeah.
4: the difference this time was different because, uh, add to the fact that everybody's stuck at home. Most of us got stimulus checks, so people have cash in their pocket, and there's no gambling, there's no sports, their usual entertainment is shut down. This really seems, and you describe it in the book, as a perfect storm that just teed up to send this, to use their parlance,
1: to the moon. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting because several things had to happen really all at once for this to happen. Um, And and so I, I... trace that and explain the the social forces uh, because I think that's I mean that that's how you tell the whole story. Uh, and it's very interesting, but it's also how you understand what it means going forward. And I, I want there, you know, and I hope that there are lessons in the book for people who invest, people who invest their own money, people on Wall Street, to to take away from this, to understand how it happened. Not that it's going to happen exactly this way again because, as I said, it was a perfect storm. But you have to go back to 2018 when you had sports gambling legalized outside of Vegas in most of the the U.S. And so you had all these young, mainly men, playing daily fantasy sports. They had the apps already, the FanDuel, DraftKings, and what have you on their phones. And all of a sudden, they were actually gambling. There's a legal distinction between daily fantasy sports and gambling, gambling. It's the only type of sports that, that negatively correlates with, with age, is sports gambling. Uh, then oh, really? Then you, totally. Everything else is, you, the older you are, the more likely you are to play slots and things like that, but not this. Then you had, um, in late 2019, so you had a five-year period when half of the new brokerage accounts opened in the U.S. were opened by Robinhood, which is a tiny broker. Let, Even let, then, Give me that data
4: big. point again. Half of all new brokerage accounts
1: yeah. were Robinhood. Yeah, not in dollar value because they were tiny. So the median right. value of those accounts was two hundred and forty-one dollars, <laughs> which is peanuts. Right. But the number of accounts—that's—that's that's something. And I—I I, I would love to to go into why, how, what made Robinhood possible. Okay, because that there are some changes there. So that you let's have to let's but, explore
4: that right now. Why was Robinhood? And, and P.S. Um, you know, I looked at Robinhood in twenty fourteen uh, in a seed round, and I. Wait, you want to give free trading yeah. to millennials? This is the single dumbest investing idea I've ever heard of. And I passed on it. What made that possible, Robinhood possible, where 20 years ago you couldn't have uh, had a the sort of app on your phone like Robinhood?
1: Well, our, our mutual friend Howard Linzon was one of the early investors in, mm-hmm. in Robinhood. He's the one and who pitched me on it. Was he? Okay. Yeah. And and then literally, so he, literally, Howard,
4: yeah. that's the dumbest blank idea I've ever – wait – the trades are free, and you're giving it to the the least wealthy people in the world. How are they ever going to make money?
1: Well, as Howard will admit, you know, he was kind of a dummy about it too, because he was smart enough to invest, <laughs> yeah. but then he was dumb enough to say, "Guys, this is a great app. You should charge like a dollar or two dollars for it. Like people will pay that," which was totally <laughs> wrong, because the fact that and and so, in, in you late, still
4: had to link it to a bank account, right? But you could download it for free. And once that, you went through the process of opening the account, that's when you found out they need this info, they need your phone number, they need that, right. they need your bank account, and before you know it, you've opened up your your financial life completely to Robinhood.
1: And your first brokerage account, and it's it's cost seventy five bucks to get out to sort of you know to move your account to somewhere somewhere else. So well, you don't you if don't you have two hundred forty one dollars, you know, right. you liquidate then. it and and move on. Exactly, yeah. That's that would be the smarter thing to do. Not that they're. Customers always did the smarter thing, but we'll get into that later. But yeah, so they, I mean, in late 2019, every other broker said, Well, screw this. You know, we're, if you can't, you know, can't beat them, then join them. And for a Schwab or a Fidelity that has much wealthier customers, they sell all kinds of services that Robinhood doesn't. They're like, Well, we're going to lose some money on this, but we have to match them. Right. And it shows you how dumb they were because they all, were wringing their hands about cutting their commissions to zero. it was no longer the the bulk of the money they made anyway but right. it was still a pretty nice chunk of change for them and they thought that it would cost them money and it made them money because you had an explosion in trading activity as a result of everyone going to zero and so that there's a psychological concept that's not appreciated. I mean you have you learn all about elasticity of demand and you learn that that when things get cheaper people will desire more of it. But it depends what kind of thing it is. And up, but there's only a, up to a point. Only up to a point. But there's a special kind of product where people, once you go from it costing something, doesn't matter how little, to nothing, it people explodes. will go crazy. It'll yep. explode. And that's specifically fun things. And so you don't think about buying a stock as a fun thing. But Robinhood made it fun. It's the same dopamine hit as as gambling or getting on a roller coaster or, or
4: just a and of heroin for the weekend.
1: Totally. And- it's the same thing as think about when you're you're a few years old and i mean so you will remember like if you had to call somebody long distance i mean you know my family my parents are immigrants and we had you know relatives far away and I remember, like you know, the very rare occasion they would spring for a, a phone call. Like everyone had to be lined up next to the phone, and right. you got your, you know, your one minute on the phone, and then hand the phone to the next person. And then it was like, oh, they're tearing their hair out about how much it would cost. Now, calling anyone in the world anywhere is free, and so people do it all the time. You know, they do it way, way more than if it just cost a tiny amount of money because he's, there's no cost to it. There's no incremental cost to it, right? And,
4: and as a note with Schwab, when they and they were the first major broker that seemed to have introduced. Um, free trading and that all the other dominoes fell after them. When you looked at their revenue the next quarter, I think something like 59% of their pre-free um, revenue came from just float on cash, right. And trading volume was really, really, you know, uh, high, single digits, low double digits. And then eventually payment for order flow more than made that up. So and a lot of assets flowed into them. So all told, this was a win win, at least for established Wall Street farms.
1: Yeah. And they were like, why do we wait so long to do this? This is great. They were all, you know, just gushing about how smart they were to do this, even though they had held off on doing it for a while. And then that was late 2019. And then what happened in early 2020 is you had the pandemic. And the pandemic was just the perfect thing to kick off the speculative excess. Of course, you, you know, you'd had free money for. Many years, basically, you know, you'd had zero. You had low-cost credit, but yeah.
4: but literal free money showing up in the mail in the form of a check or a direct deposit, that, that kicked in um, in the second quarter of 2020.
1: Yeah. If you were 23 years old and you, you know, had been, let's say, working, maybe living with friends, all of a sudden you're in mom and dad's basement. You get this check for twelve hundred bucks. Uh, you might be getting extended unemployment benefits. Uh, you're not spending money going out every night. You know you're at the age right. where you you spend money as soon as you make it. All of a sudden you weren't. You're bored. You're sitting there looking at your phone for 12 hours a day, and you're lo- you're looking at social media. And all of a sudden, all these new social media people are popping up talking about stocks, the stock market. You know, there's this whole rise of of influencers, and so you go and you know your buddy tells you to open up a Robinhood account, and you open up a Robinhood account because he already has a Robinhood account, and he'll get he got a free share of stock when he opened it, and he'll get another free share of stock. Mystery, like it's like a sweepstakes because it it could be a two dollar stock, but it could possibly be a fifty dollar stock, right? right. Uh, you don't know. It's 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 like a you know, I mean, it's like all a, told, you know, that's
4: a cheap cost of acquisition for a brokerage firm, right?
1: Uh, all told, the uh, average payback period was five months for that investment. That's so they didn't really need to. Add, they did have advertisements, and their advertisements were really kind of to kind of um you know make themselves look good. Basically, it wasn't to get new customers. Their 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 ads. We're all touchy feely. You were born an investor. I never thought I could do this. And the people they show in their ads were not the typical lucrative customers they had either. They were, you know, um, you know, mainly female, a few older people. It was young males primarily. And and the thing is, they did most of their customers. They don't make money on, but there's a, a subset on which they make a lot of money. And, and so those are the people they're trying to get. It was young, risk-seeking. Uh, you know, kind of not maybe not too wise men. And as a father of three young men, I can I, mean, I, mean, I know what I'm talking about uh, and and, you, know, and so that that's when you had the explosion during the pandemic. And you had all this volatility, which was just just addictive. It was like crack cocaine, you know, you couldn't stop. And then in the year from the the pandemic bear market bottom to a year after, ninety six percent
0: of American stocks rose, which was which crazy is huge, that's which a is an huge, unprecedented huge number when cyber criminals strike the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware yet in a recent ey poll only 23 percent of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting, you can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers.
3: Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time.
2: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson Pete. Join us on the Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
4: So, so let's talk a little bit about the revolution that that wasn't by using GameStop as an example as you did so well in the book. and and it has to begin with a guy whose name, we now know, as Keith Gill, um, since this is a family station, I can only use a, an acronym. He went by D.F.V. on on Reddit and on YouTube. He was Roaring Kitty, and he basically takes all of his money, some fifty-something thousand dollars, buys leaps like a year or two mm-hmm. off in the future, way out of the money. And this just looks like a wild. So he buys calls, betting the stock will go up uh, on GameStop, which is a couple of bucks, a buck or two or three at the time. And he posts it um, without a whole lot of commentary on game, uh, Wall Street Bets on Reddit, just a picture of his brokerage account with the options there in his portfolio, apparently nothing else and the word phrase i like the stock
1: yep yolo you only live once so he is a really really fascinating character an unusual character and the one of the interesting things is let me tell you that i mean of course his whole history is there to be seen but for 90% of of this story he's there in the background doing these these videos Four-hour, five-hour-long, you know, videos talking about the stock and talking about investing, making these posts, responding to people who mainly made fun of him on this message board. Like a lot, he took a lot of heat, and you know, he was he was unusual in a lot of ways uh, on this forum. Wall Street Bets. One thing is he wrote in complete sentences. The other is like he was, I mean, you, you might he not think He didn't
4: advocate people go out and buy it. He just said. I like the stock. That basically right. as much as, right. as as much influencing as he did was here's a picture of my account. I'm going to live and die on it. You guys go do what you want. You,
1: you want a textbook example of of not how not to influence people right o- online and that, and that's it because he was cerebral, he was polite. Uh you know, he people would kind of make fun of him. He said, "Well, that's not the way I think about it because uh you know, Behavioral finance dictates that blah, blah, blah. And uh, uh, as I follow uh, the teachings of Aswata Madharana and whatever, right. like, you know, stuff like that. Value no one knows who at he is. NYU. Yeah, exactly. The, the, the valuation guru at NYU. None of these kids know who that was or right. cared, you know, right? I mean, and so he was just basically sort of, you know, it was like a, a tree falling in the woods. I mean, some people were like, you know, sometimes he would make money and then I'd say, hey, you should sell. I'm like, no, right. no, no. And then he'd lose half of it. And people were following me and said, Wow, what an idiot. You know, I, for the money that you lost, I could have done this and that. You could have bought a GameStop franchise. Yeah, so he invested fifty-three thousand dollars of his money. He's not a rich guy at all. He was working he didn't say anything about himself, by the way. And he was and I think had he said this, he probably would have had less influence. He's a charter right. financial analyst, which is a difficult qualification CFA, to sure. get. Sure. One, two, and three have each have like a fifty something percent fail rate.
4: Yeah. So he's in the industry. And then he, um, being being smart and hardworking, is always good. But getting a little lucky is better. And and not long afterwards, along comes Michael Burry of the Big Short fame, and basically takes a position in GameStop, saying, "Hey, you know, this is a classic cigar butt. Uh, there's some value here, and and there's way too much." Uh, Negativity about it.
1: What what happens from there? Well, I'll tell you. This, this is interesting too because I'll I won't say the entire name, but it's DFV is Deep Effing Value. So value is is part of his moniker, and he was upset. He said, "You know, thanks a lot, Burry, for jacking up my cost basis right. because you know I can't buy more." Well, he said, "Now it's going to be more expensive to buy more." Right. Thanks he thought he would
4: build a position over a couple of years. The technical term is pyramiding. you keep adding to an existing position right. as prices gradually
1: rise, but they practically doubled overnight right. and he and most people, I mean, ninety-nine point nine percent of people on this board would be like, Especially "I bought this. Traders. I bought this. These options, and like now I've doubled my money, you know, because because the stock went up because Michael Burry shows up, who's played by Christian Bale. That's what most people think of Christian. Right. Picture of Christian Bale instead of Michael at Burry the drum himself. set in totally. in the Big Short. Yeah, totally. And so, and people are like, "What? What's wrong with you? Like, you should sell. Like, you know, he. This is like a stroke of luck. And it's not how he viewed it at all, which uh, is a very rare form of thinking. So." he I think like he was it, long, surprisingly long time for someone buying options totally, and i I think i I would not be surprised if this guy shows up one day, five years, ten years, maybe not even that long, you know, managing some kind of you know value fund, just sort of mm-hmm. like a kind of a hip Warren Buffett or something because he he really he has that way of thinking, first of all, obviously he has analytical chops by having right. had a CFA, not maybe not buffett like, but he he certainly knows what he's talking about. But he he just has that that kind of unusual way of, of looking at things and inverting things that, that you need right. for success. But at the same time, as we'll see later, he he's got that, you know, he's cool and young and he was 33, 34 during the, this this episode. And the point at which he became really super influential, the one of the most followed people on the planet, basically, for a couple of weeks. Uh, he wasn't posting any kind of analysis. You know, right. he he was like he became the hero, briefly of this this whole movement.
4: So so following Michael Burry, not much longer than that, Ryan Cohen, who is the founder of Chewy, which essentially um, is the most successful online pet food and and goods store. Uh, essentially, what Pets. dot com couldn't do, Chewy became. And Ryan Cohen then says. Hey, we think GameStop can become an online purveyor of video games. Forget the brick and mortar; that that's just where they were. Let's talk about the future. And now the stock takes another leg up, from one and two and three dollars to five and ten dollars. Tell us what happens next.
1: Yeah, so he, he he shows up, and then things start to get interesting. Um, it it starts going up to the point that it it was at the point that that. Uh, deep effing value, would have sold. You know, he said, like, I think, you know, this is, he had made enough money. He was a millionaire. Right, on paper. Just a million, just one million. One million, then two million, a couple of million, no, no big deal. And life-changing before money for taxes. Him. Before taxes. Exactly, before taxes. But then uh, a light bulb goes off, and, and even before this, a light bulb kind of went off in his head uh, some months before, because someone had pointed out on this this uh, board, like, hey, this this could be the greatest short squeeze of your life. The mother of all short squeezes. The mother of all short squeezes, you know, the kind of the Saddam yeah. language. And and it briefly doubled uh, and and then settled back down. But that was a foretaste. And that's the first time he mentions like, hey, in addition to all the good stuff I think about GameStop, there's this additional possibility, I'm not going to really count on it, that there could be a short squeeze. Because, the, you know, the thing that, that GameStop and the other, they call them meme stocks, you know, had in common was that they're all kind of losers. They weren't- AMC, this... the, the big movie chain,
4: which was dying on the vine during yeah. the pandemic. Hertz, which had already declared bankruptcy exactly. and was <laughs> waiting for the court to just dole out the assets, which is insane. Uh, what were some of the other ones? Blackberry, in there? remember That's those? That's right. Nokia yeah. was another one yeah. that popped up. Bed, like, uh, Bath & Beyond. We used to call that dumpster diving. When you're looking through the wreckage on Wall Street, to find that cigar
1: stub what can i still smoke that someone else has thrown away in 2000 2020 was possibly the worst year ever for short sellers or people who bet that stocks are going to decline usually by borrowing the the stock and and selling it so basically they they open themselves up to Unlimited losses, in theory, so, and, and limited gains. And so 2020 was a terrible year. You had all kinds of dumb stuff going up that they were betting against. Nikola and, you know, I can go on and on and on so about the let's dumb us So
4: let's put some flesh on those bones. And this is data from the book. It, in the 2020 market, we saw a 34% drop. And then beginning on March 25th, markets rallied to finish up more than 20% for the year. And during that year, short sellers lost collectively $245 billion, which is pretty astounding. But then when you look at the three months leading into January 2021, when the meme stocks really exploded, um, a basket of the 50 most shorted stocks uh, that had a market cap of at least a billion dollars, that basket doubled those are right. some insane stats if you're a short seller.
1: Yeah, that that is a, just a world of pain if you're a short seller. And so think about it if you were, I mean, there there are people out there, Jim Chanos and what have you, who are dedicated short sellers. Um, there are a lot more people out there who have short selling as part of their strategy. That That's the, the bulk of short selling. Right. Um, some
4: people are, are, are just fine, bad companies, a bit against them. Others run what's called a, like a 130-30, a long short portfolio, where you're 130% long and then 30% short. So net, you're 100% long, but you have a hedge if the market goes down
1: uh, on the bet that the worst stocks will fall more than the best stocks. Totally. And and that's, that's usually a smart bet because you usually don't worry about something terrible happening to you being ruined, right? I mean, <laughs> you don't think... What's the worst thing that's going to happen? You bet against GameStop, and then let's say somebody shows, Best Buy shows up and buys pays it. Pays double. Pays right? double. Okay, you had a Give really you three bad day. Box, right? right, you had a terrible day, but that's it. Not a terrible day, you had a bad day. It was probably some small part of your right. your, old, your huge portfolio. And so the, what these meme stocks had in common was that they're all losers like that. They're all companies that had not made money in years, were headed for be- possible bankruptcy, were sort of just anachronisms like like BlackBerry. They're c- the companies that like in... 2001 were sort of hot, but not in 2021, right? And so, they were in, in, a, in a horrible year for short selling. They felt safe betting against these companies, but they felt too safe. And that was the the kind of the dry kindling that started this fire, was that they felt so safe betting against some of these companies that their short positions left them no exit if things really went wrong. But What's no one, as we said at the beginning of the show, it's not like you and I it would be illegal for us to gang up and say, "Hey, I happen to know that X, y Z hedge fund is very heavily short this thing, and we can ambush him by basically all colluding, putting all our money together and pushing it to the you know to the moon, But because then he would be forced to buy back. then his money he would pile his buying on top of ours to buy back the stock, and then there'd be a stampede for this sort of it's like shouting fire in a crowded theater. Right. Short squeezes happen all the time, but you don't like those ambushes they, they used to happen before there was an SEC. Now you can't do that. So so again, more more data
4: points. You know a a, a normal stock a billion dollar plus stock might have a short interest of 10 or 20%. If that gets up to 30, 40, 50%, that's called a, a crowded short. Hey, too many people are betting against it. Some of these um, small cap and micro cap stocks had shortest interests of eighty, 90 hundred percent. GameStop had a short interest of hundred and forty percent. This was a lot of dry kindling and and people lighting uh, sparks, wasn't it?
1: it It totally was I mean one hundred and forty percent of the float and people and of course there are ongoing sort of you know complaints and conspiracy theories like that's illegal. you can't you know it is not illegal because there's a right. process called rehypothecation where if you you know if you go on the market today and you buy a stock uh, and then it's in your account at Schwab or whatever Schwab might lend that stock out even if you purchase that stock from a short seller they don't know where it came from so right. and a then stock you can, can be rehypothecate lent, that and right right could so, be lent twice or three times right. it happens
4: the, the, there's no ceiling on the amount of short interest other than hey at, at 2 or 300% you know it's financial suicide at 100 percent, there's no room for error no no you know and 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 as we clearly saw so so let's talk a little bit about short selling and what's good and bad about it but i gotta start by asking about a story you tell about the history of the paperwork crisis on wall street and how does that relate to what's going on with uh with Reddit and GameStop and the meme stocks.
1: Tell us about uh, the paperwork crisis. Sure. Well, there's a great book uh, by John Brooks called The Go-Go Years, where I I think I first heard about that. I've read about it other places, too. But the paperwork crisis was something that happened during a previous speculative mania in the late 1960s, when you had just an explosion in trading activity. And this was before things were computerized. There was so much paperwork, in fact, that the stock market had to be, for a long, long time, closed on Wednesdays, just in order to (laughs) allow people to catch up, you know, settling all the trades and making sure... This was the
4: nifty-fifty era, and a lot of stocks... The post-war bull market was still running from yeah. you know, the late 40s right up to the mid-60s.
1: Wall Street was hot. Wall Street was hot, and that was at a time that it was really expensive to trade, which is the—that's the reason that I—one reason that I, I brought it up, because it wasn't until 1975 that commissions were deregulated. So for years and years and years, this is a complaint saying that, like, brokers could charge fixed commissions, and it was just really expensive— for brokers to help themselves to your money, basically, right. uh, on, on Wall Street. So, you know, the, all these, these people who were involved in this never could have been involved because the hurdle financially to get into trading was just too high. And then you couldn't be hyperactive. And even then, people were hyperactive. And then, when you, you brought commissions down and down and down, you know, you had the dot com and, and whatever. And then, you know, then now you had this, which that was, was like, $8 makes,
4: tradings down to now to free.
1: free down to free, that that kind of makes it a little bit easier for there to be a speculative mania. And so that that was just kind of part of the the kind of long arc of history on Wall Street that I tell. And yeah, and so making it free, you really crossed a, a Rubicon, but but even making it cheaper uh, made made things easier. Of course, it may got made cheaper in the middle of the worst decade ever, really, except the 1930s for Wall Street, 1975 was a terrible time. You know, if if you had gone to like uh, these brokers with like, you know, sideburns and wide (laughs) ties and polyester suits and stuff in 1975, who were like having a terrible time financially in 1975, and you're like, oh, this is the first step in, you know, this kind of revolution that's going to make you guys really rich. You know, you're going to have this surge of people in the 80s coming and 401ks are going to be invented and all this stuff. They would have thought you were crazy. Like, you know, oh, and then some guy's going to, you know, go on this thing called the Internet. His name is Roaring Kitty and he's going to, you know, make a video game store, you know, be the most traded security on the planet from total obscurity. Like then they, they really think you're crazy. But so, that's, that's you know, that was the beginning of it. That was a key step.
4: So, so that's how we ended up eventually getting to the point where, Um, Trading became free. The short squeeze that that was orchestrated on Reddit has this underlying theme that short sellers are evil, that this is all a big conspiracy theory. Um, Even Elon Musk has weighed in on this. Why the animus towards short sellers?
1: Yeah, if you look at the way that short sellers, and I, I just in, in encourage readers to go go to Google right now and uh, type in short sellers are and tell me what you see. And uh, it's not going to be a nice word. It's not going to be a nice description. So going back to the history of, of stock markets, back to the 1630s uh, in the Netherlands, short sellers have, have been reviled because whereas most of us buy a stock and then hope it'll go up and keep paying us dividends they are making the opposite bet. Uh, making that opposite bet, though, is not predatory at all. As a matter right. of fact, the existence of short selling is, is very beneficial to as, 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 to everyone in the markets, but especially to a retail investor that doesn't know a lot. And I'll explain why. One reason is that short sellers provide a lot of liquidity to the market that wouldn't otherwise exist. Sure. But, There, if there were no short selling, then there are only two things you could do. You could say, "I'm going to buy the stock," or "I'm not going to buy the stock." You abstain or you vote yes. You can't vote no. You can't say, "You know what? The stock is too expensive," and so there's nobody to really to kind of correct the value of a stock. It takes a much much longer time for the kind of scales to fall from our eyes. Not just when there's a fraud like Enron, which was exposed by short selling. Well, you interviewed Jim
4: Chanos a lot, and he's Enron was but one of many frauds that he. And other short sellers have identified and in fact short sellers seem to do a much better job than the FTC or the SEC or whatever organization is in charge of investigating corporate fraud, then, you know, they they've done a really good job letting investors know this company is lying to you and if you put money into this you're gonna lose it
1: as Jim says, you know, short sellers are financial detectives and regulators are financial archaeologists. You know, after the fact they <laughs> right. come in and and do something hopefully good. Yeah, so they I mean, I'm not holding short sellers up as like a paragon of virtue. They're out there on Wall Street, they're trying to make money. That's that's the free market. They're out there. They're playing a very dangerous game. They have to be really confident in selling something short because as I said, the the losses are theoretically unlimited, the gains are capped. It's the it's the inverse of what you face as a, a normal investor. Uh, by the way, I'm not encouraging anyone out there to go and sell stock short. It's a very uh, dangerous and complicated thing. It's hard and I don't think that people need to do it. but I think that that we're all better off if short sellers are kind of unmolested, I guess in the market. that's you know they're not there have been times, especially bad times in the market and, and research has shown this again and again when you when you restrict short selling, then you wind up kind of you know, delaying the normalization of the market, like in 2008 and, and around the time of Short the Short sellers are the
4: first ones to step in and buy in a crash because they're covering right. and saying, all right, we've made enough money. And literally, studies have shown they're the first buyers, then the value guys come in, then the technicals.
0: There's like a whole arc of that. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers.
3: Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time.
2: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
4: You reference in the book a 2004 Harvard study by Professor Orden Lamont that said when, when you have companies complaining about short sellers, in general, they do much worse than the average stock and much more frequently go bankrupt. So it's almost a red flag when you hear management. Dick Fold is a perfect example. He got of handed brothers. a copy of that study. Right. And, someone in the book, yeah, you say when yeah. he was complaining about it, someone literally handed him, handed him a copy of the study. And I guess the implication was, hey, Dick, maybe you should just not not go there.
1: Yeah, well, he he did not take that advice, uh, unfortunately. And Lehman for him. went bankrupt. Yeah,
4: so they fit the study perfectly. So so, short selling isn't necessarily um, inherently evil, and yet that seems to be the the gestalt
1: on on Wall Street bets. And that's a really interesting point at which to kind of understand where the people who mainly were involved in this came from. So it, it's like young people between the ages of 18 and 35 primarily who participated in this mostly male as i said but gender doesn't doesn't matter in this case but their formative financial experience before they ever could invest was the global financial crisis and so and there's this lingering anger that like we never really got our pound of flesh my parents lost their home my parents friends right. lost their house or i have these student loans that are really hard to pay back i can't earn enough and i can't buy a house and these guys are getting rich. and 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 the decades since the the GFC, you know you've you've had a further kind of spread. You know, the rich have gotten richer, and the poor have not gotten much wealthier. And so you know you you really do have polarization in terms of of wealth and income and access to all kinds of things in this country. It's, it's not a you know a very egalitarian society that we live in, much less so than in the past. And so they focus that animus on not on rich people because they like Elon Musk, and they like other rich people. They like Silicon Valley rich guys.
4: They love Morgan. Chamath, right? They, they love Chamath, fan? yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Yeah,
1: he's cool. But they, uh, they, if you wear a suit and work on Wall Street, you're like a cartoon villain to them. And then specifically, if you're a hedge fund manager, hedge fund managers to them are, are evil personified. And then if you're a hedge fund manager who sells stock short, where there's already this bias against betting against something – there's this kind of sense that like they want to ruin a company, which is not what they want to do because that's that's not what happens when you bet it's against too h- a company. It's too
4: hard to do that. I, I, totally. So
1: so there was something you reference in the book off
4: of off of Reddit that cracked me up. A lot of the memes, you know, this was really amusing and entertaining. Oh yeah. So so the intersection of the social side of it, the political uh, economic warrior side of it and the investing side, it's a weird group. I I love this bankrupting institutional investors for dummies. Like they photoshopped the investing for dummies and we're gonna go after the hedge funds, who by the way, had nothing whatsoever to do with the great financial crisis, but seemed to have garnered a lot of uh, criticism that they were somehow involved. When they, of all the people to blame, I, not them, right? Right. Yeah. They, uh, you, there's lots of stuff. If you want to Go to Angela about,
1: Mozilla or someone like that, right? right?
4: There's a million right. people to blame. But of, uh, of all the folks, hedge funds really were not involved in the financial crisis. So it seems weird that there's this sort of n- undirected general smoldering rage, and it's just looking for an outlet.
1: And then they told them on the board, hey, there's this hedge fund manager who, like <laughs> otherwise a low-profile guy- uh, his firm is, believe it or not, called Melvin Capital. What a dweeb! And how did and, the name you know,
4: Melvin Capital come about? How so, did that name
1: Gabe come? Plotkin, who's one of the one of the big one of the few big losers, which is a
4: dweeby thing. enough name to begin with, right. <laughs> He's like, no, no, Gabe Plotkin isn't
1: nebushy enough. Right? Let's call it Melvin. It was his grandfather's name. Yeah. His grandfather was a convenience store owner who we really admired, and so he named his a his lovely hedge fund. sentiment. Well, d- people people laughed at it, like they were like some of the commentary when he set up the fund, because right. he came from uh, S. A. C. Uh, which was was then Steve later Cohen, shut down. Right. Steve Cohen's fund, and he now runs now point it's 72, point, Right. Point seventy two, but he uh, he was seated by Steve Cohen, and he for years had huge success. Uh, he was a very good fan. People weren't Shot laughing the lights anymore. Out. Right? He he personally high double digit returns. Totally. He he personally, this this is like the just incredible to me. This number I, I've mentioned this. People said, "No, you must be,
3: <laughs> you must be,
1: must be wrong about that." He you know people not not from Wall Street are like. Really, like he earned personally eight hundred and forty-six million dollars the year before this whole episode right. went down.
4: He was a billionaire m- multiple times owner, yeah. over not even counting what he still had. Like a big chunk of of uh, Melvin was his own capital
1: as well at that point. It was so, and 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 seven billion dollars of it went poof in a few days because <laughs> of this. Yeah. So, but he was, and and there are other hedge funds that were short um, GameStop, but he was especially short. Uh, because he had a, a fund that, that specialized uh, in, in retailers and things like that and consumer discretionary. Fit,
4: dead center of of his target of companies that either were overvalued or overpriced or should
1: be bankrupt. And he testified that in 2014, when he set up his fund, that was one of the first positions he put on. It was a good, good bet, too, in 2014, um, because it went down a lot between Wh- 2014— Where was he initially short from? Gee, I think it was probably uh, $40, 50 bucks at that time. So yeah, you know, he wrote to, it down to t- two sixty, I think. Which raises you know, the question: the
4: Really, what are you hanging around for the last buck or two?
1: Well, the, and and a crowded raises,
4: short. Yeah. You know, at that uh, right. is it. Just not wanting to pay the taxes. I, I don't. That was one of the things that you don't answer in the book, and I don't. I have yet to read that answer. But you short something at forty, it drops to a dollar or two. Who cares about that last buck? What are you waiting for?
1: Yeah. And I mean, obviously, you know, in, in reporting a book, there are people you speak with who are on the record, people are off the record. I, I did try to kind of suss that out. and never really, to my satisfaction, did. It. And I just think it was because it was still, there was just nothing else too short. You I know, guess that, $2 thought, say, to zero is still another 100%. Still 100%, yeah. Right? yeah so, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and then the reason that they became aware of him, because the way that short selling works is you can see how much short interest there is in a stock, but you can't see who is shorting it. But... If you buy derivatives for your fund right. that have the same effect, and he did, and that was uh, turned out to be a fatal mistake, because because these weren't call options
4: where you're deciding in advance how much you're risking. When there are certain derivatives where you have full exposure in both directions,
1: there there are. Although he owned puts, which are which do have a limited loss, you can only lose the premium. Right. But that, and that's what showed up. And then he and then he was being talked about on this forum. Uh, you know, when when Ryan, the same time that Ryan Cohen came in, and then he upped it. and even when he was being talked about, and uh, I mean, there, I, I don't want to kind of get into. You well, know, I besides, well did, I let did, me did. let me say Speaking things that, that yeah. you don't want to say because
4: yeah. I get away with them. Yeah. Where maybe you are uncomfortable saying yeah. that. Here's a guy who's incredibly successful. He's a, a Wall Street professional. He's a billionaire, and he sees a bunch of wise asses and kids on a message board mocking him and he's like really let me show you how it's done because this pos is going to zero like it's easy to see yeah there's a lack of humility there but it's not you know foldy and hubris it's just
1: i'll show the kids how it's done and didn't work out that's that's i think that's a pretty good guess at, at what happened i think it also it's a it's it's an organization of 30 or 40 people that may not have gotten to his level yet. I think and right. it was just it the person one or two levels below him just didn't take it seriously. They were like these memes why would like, you? give me a break. Why would you? But before
4: right? this all happened, why would anyone take degenerates and apes seriously? I mean, the whole thing about Reddit, and and I love Reddit. I've been playing on Reddit for years. There are all these Reddit you know, slash R's, all these subcategories mm-hmm. that... They're rabbit holes, and yeah, Reddit has issues with all sorts of, of like every social media, all sorts of problems. Um, that's a whole nother conversation. But if you want to do a deep dive into anything, um, there's a Reddit for it, and some of them are just mind-blowingly astonishing. But if you're a professional hedge fund manager, how seriously are you going to take – people, and it's not even in the main investing channel. It's in like a sub sub channel. That's a bunch of goofballs.
1: Yeah. And, 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 and 98% of what they post is just rude jokes and memes and things like that. So there's not a lot of, the thing is that the memes were the the message, the memes, you know, the, right. they, they used like hieroglyphs or rather that they, they used to to communicate. And so uh, which is why we call them meme stocks today, and uh, yeah, I mean they did not take it seriously. They do today. As a matter of fact, there was a, a study done uh, that showed that today ninety five percent of hedge funds either themselves or they pay a service to monitor social media for their right. positions. So they're, you know they they take it very seriously today. They're
4: using AI to make sure that this doesn't happen again. And there's a data point from the book that I, I have to share. So. Goldman Sachs keeps a, a basket of unprofitable stocks. That's literally what the basket is called. And in twenty twenty, when the Dow was up about seven percent, this gained three hundred percent. Stop and think about how insane that is. The the
1: worst of the worst are just destroying everything else. Yeah. I mean, and that that tells you what it why a quarter of a trillion dollars almost was was lost by short sellers in 2020. It's because it, the the dumber it was, the better <laughs> it did, and that's and that that really formed the the attitude of this. You know, there are people who who were participated in the meme stocks Squeeze who had three months, six months, nine months, maybe a year of of investing experience, all of it in these crazy markets. Everything that some serious guy like Barry Ritholtz, you know, goes on TV and talks about and says, "This I would not touch this, those are the things that went up, right? Right. So, I mean... And went up a lot. And went up a lot. So, and, you know, Warren Buffett, the greatest investor of all time, got out of airline stocks, which he he wasn't right, but he very well could have been right. I mean, things looked pretty hairy. We didn't know there was going to be a vaccine. We didn't know how bad... The you know COVID pandemic would be It certainly looked really bad in in March and April 2020, and he sold out of his airline stocks at a big loss. Uh, not typically Buffett behavior, but you make good the risk best management.
4: decision you can with the information you have at the ha- at at the time, and as often as not, you're right or wrong. And in that case, Buffett was wrong. That doesn't seem to be what the redditors were doing. These folks were just you know we weren't democratizing finance we were democratizing risk-taking and speculation. Totally. So throughout the book, we hear the phrase democratizing finance. Were we democratizing finance or democratizing risk-taking and speculation?
1: You know, it's it's a phrase that drives me crazy. Democratizing finance, you know, to me, is basically bringing uh, investing to a level that anyone can participate. And basically that has been... Accomplished through years of competition and technological progress. You know, I gave the example uh, we were talking earlier about the paperwork crisis. It was very expensive to to trade. Then, if you had a little bit of money, that they wouldn't bother giving you the time of day on Wall Street. You had to have a lot, and then and then you really got got fleeced. You know, because of big charges. Even just to, to you know, you look. People talk about. These long-term charts were like, oh, if you had invested in 1926, Nobody you'd have this was much doing money. That. There was no index fund then, and it right. cost you money to reinvest your dividends. And like, if you had a little bit of money, if you had invested a dollar, well, you couldn't invest a dollar then. So right. it's totally wait. wait there was no partial share purchases. What no, no. And so today you can you can do that. And Rob at Robinhood and others, you can buy a fractional share. You can buy an exchange-traded fund that costs 0.03 percent a year. You can do all these things. So the the door is is open for people with very little money today and it was you know prior to robin hood although the robin hood you know effect did kind of accelerate things very very cheaply very easily to get on that ladder which i urge anyone especially in their like their teens or 20s getting started out with lots of decades to compound their wealth to do it is a smart thing to do to get on the ladder but not in an active crazy way in a kind of a you know put your money and let it grow and don't check it a lot way and, and, and save as much as you can way. And that that really has been democratized. But then when you... you talk to Robinhood and say, hey, you guys are just encouraging. You're, you've gamified this thing and you're inducing FOMO. You know, you open up your app and you the first thing you show is what everyone else is doing and buying, what's up, what down, what's down. That's not useful information. That's information that makes you feel like you're missing out, makes you feel like you need to be active. And their active customers, the people who use the app, were using it in 2020 on average over seven times a day, opening it seven times a day. They had customers who were trading 11,000 times over a six-month period. There's just absolutely no reason for anybody to trade 11,000 times or even 1,000 times or even 100 times in a, a time span like that. It's it. Study after study, by the way, has shown that that is uh, inversely correlated with your performance. Right. The more you trade, the worse you do. It's a very well-understood effect. Uh, and even just checking your account frequently, it's called myopic loss aversion, right. it's, it's well understood that if you look at your account less, you'll do better because you're less likely to see a loss, which pains you more than a gain pleases you. And so, you know, that—that that is not the formula for success. They understood that. And you and, you note in the book, the average Schwab
4: account trades 45 times less than the average Robinhood account. Those numbers per, are just- per,
1: per dollar in the account. Uh, per yeah. dollar. Yeah.
4: It's just mind-blowing.
1: And and options trading even more, and only thirteen percent of Robinhood's customers traded uh, options. But options were the most lucrative product for them yes. because. And that's you know you've heard a lot about payment for order flow. Payment mm-hmm. for order flow, I don't think is it's just a, a mechanical way of, of paying for trades. I don't have such a big problem with it, but it it is a, a practice where you basically you sell your orders to a market maker that's off a stock exchange that pays you to execute it and then keeps a little bit of the money, basically is very efficient at matching it up. Payment for order flow, the only problem I have with it is that it enables this behavior by making trading free. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I don't think there's anything really insidious about it, which is a controversial view now, I know, but. So so let's look at the aftermath of this. So so Keith Gill took
4: $53,000, buys deep out of the money calls, and by the time the calls uh, peak, a year and change later, it's what forty-seven million dollars. W- yeah,
1: I think intraday he probably had sixty or seventy million dollars. Really? Like, uh, but yeah, but I I think uh, about forty-nine or fifty, uh, like in the end of day at and, the, at the and peak. And much... he would have had more had he not, because he cashed in some. But he had he had perfect timing almost. He cashed them in during the the week that was the real mania. So uh, what
4: did he end up netting when everything was said and done? Because I was kind of surprised. That he bought more stock. Yeah. So so from what I recall in the book, he he cashes out about $3 million worth of options and then later sells a bunch of the options and exercises them and, and ends up with $30 million worth of stock, something crazy In like GameStop, that.
1: yeah, which is a pretty – even then, you know – It's real money. He was – because he was called to this congressional hearing. That's the only time we've ever heard his voice or seen him. I mean, he was interviewed by two well, of Well, other colleagues. than YouTube. Exactly. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, but um, yeah. But he was like not a total unknown then, and right. then he stopped doing those videos. And uh, yeah, exactly. So people were very curious. It was probably one of the more watched sure. congressional hearings, you know, because because of him, really. And and he got asked the fewest questions, um, or almost the fewest questions. But I mean, you know, it was what were they going to they didn't want to antagonize him and you know and he was you know he, it's strange because he was the only retail investor there and it was really all about retail investors they could right. have asked him some some pretty good juicy questions had they been curious about it uh, but I don't think they were they were outraged that trading was halted and that that's a key part of the so story So let's
4: talk about that before we will circle back to Gill. So right in the height of this where the short squeeze is having maximum effect um Robin Hood is adding incredible numbers of new accounts offering incredible amount of uh, margin to these new account holders and a lot of option trading why did they halt the most shorted squeeze stocks
1: they did because they did too good of a job that's basically that's they didn't have the
4: capital to meet their custodial
1: agreements they got a call, and, and now we have more detail, by the way. Is recently, a report came out from this congressional committee. Very a recently. Report, very recently. good And a good report worth reading uh, that has a lot of detail. It was a, actually much worse than uh, than what we knew. They were very close to going under. Not only that, we, we knew they were very close to going under. What we didn't know was how close they got to taking other people under.
4: Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> Who were they going to drag with them?
1: Well, Apex Clearing, you know, got mm-hmm. into trouble, which was the clear you know, the clearing broker for lots of brokers and the the market makers who were processing the trades said we're not gonna we're gonna stop processing these trades because you're gonna you're gonna create a problem for us. So Citadel, right. which was the biggest processor of their trades, and they got they got into a conflict with Citadel. Uh, was Ken Griffin in rel- shop
4: in Chicago now Miami. Yeah. yeah,
1: Ken Griffin is a hedge fund manager who all his his holding. Company plays a role in this because it it injected money into Cape uh, Plotkin's fund right uh, at, after he lost a bunch of money. But it also plays a role in this because he is the major shareholder in a securities firm also called Citadel. A lot that caused lots of confusion and lots of conspiracy thinking. That was a really big beneficiary of this but what people don't understand is that this was a burden to them too because this this it was a dangerous level of speculation in a na- very narrow set of stocks right and you open you know, a new account on robin hood you you put a thousand dollars in you buy
4: two thousand dollars worth of stock and if it drops in half somebody's got to come up with that money and if you don't Someone else is on the hook. Now, they're adding like half a million accounts a week, some crazy number. They, they added
1: almost a million in a day during this That's thing.
4: unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. And yet, all this is algo-driven. All this is automated. There is no real adults saying, oh, oh, we don't have the capital to extend. They basically just—it wasn't until they got the uh, the founder of Robinhood, uh, what's his name, Terev? Vlad Tenev, yeah. Tenev. Uh, it it's it, three in the morning. He gets a phone call. Uh, we need three billion dollars in three hours, or you're out of business. Right, three in the morning, West Coast time. West Coast, right. West Coast time. Six so a.m. Market's gonna yeah, open yeah. in three
1: hours. You need three billion dollars, or you're done. Yeah, even, even as hot as things were in early 2021, you don't people don't drop three billion dollars on you in three hours when they're all asleep, right? So, but he
4: managed to actually get just this get this done between lines of credit and some cash. And then restricting
1: all of these meme stocks. Right. They had about a $700 million line of credit they drew down. They had already had $700 million on deposit at DTCC. And then they said, uh, how about if we don't allow our customers to buy any more of these? We'll only let them sell. And even then, they really bent the rules to yeah. keep them in business. And so what people- Because these, these, if they blew up, they, this most of this stuff wasn't systemic.
4: But at that point, if Robinhood blows up- and uh, it, Maybe it's not the great financial
1: crisis, but there are waves that are gonna gonna really have negative effect. Totally. And, and their their customers were so angry at not being able to buy these stocks. And what they don't realize is, had they been allowed to buy them, not only they would they not have, have been, destroyed, they would have got not only would they gotten lost a lot of money because they, they would have, their money would have been locked up for weeks. By which point, right. you know, Bankruptcy, GameStop had lost ninety five. Right. It would have lost ninety five percent of its value. But you, everything would have been frozen. Right. you know for weeks or even months right. in robin hood right so they they would have been wiped out the vast majority so, of so so let's bring this back to keith gill who when
4: i uh, you going through the book and and when you when you look at the boards he is described at separate times the reddit boards as he's a genius visionary he's uh, just a guy who got lucky he's an idiot who left generational wealth changing amounts of money
1: um, on the table. Uh, what was he really? So he was a very unusual person to be in this group at all, right? Mm-hmm. But the fact that, so people, when they started getting excited about GameStop and the positive short squeeze, then he was discovered. Then he became, he went from being this kind of laughing stock to being a celebrity. And his posts changed then too. His posts were, they were Built posts of memes and things like that. He was talking about Ryan Cohen on his um, on his YouTube channel. People still didn't know his identity. They didn't know his identity until um, to Wall Street. Uh, yeah, I, I you know other people could figure it out. I mean, like mm-hmm. you know, but until two Wall Street uh journal reporters interviewed him and published the interview on the 29th which is the day after trading was was halted 29th of january 2021 and it was a great interview with him iconic picture uh right. the pictures of my book uh the headband the the, head- the whole thing and in, literally in the basement in, in in the basement i spoke with the photographer who was there taking the shots of him and i spoke with them of course and there's a lot of you know things that fell to the cutting room floor. So really fascinating story. All the kind of this is the lair where he operated that you saw on the YouTube videos, and so he crazy. he became a hero. And basically what he did, what was at that point, what he was doing every day was just once a day after the market closed, he posted. Uh, a screenshot of his V Trade account, obviously not with his account number or his name. Right. Uh, and just the value of the options he had in GameStop, and just the fact that he hadn't sold. And people are like, if "He's not selling. I'm not selling. If he's in it, if he's in, I'm still in." And when this this went from
4: fifty to a hundred back to sixty, people gave him grief. And then it went to a million, and then down to five hundred, and people gave him grief. And then it went to two, four, ten million, and suddenly we were off to the races.
1: Yeah. And it's called, that's a concept called social proof. You know, if someone is making money doing something. And, you know, unfortunately there are like a lot of people on the internet who uh, have claimed to have, or actually have made money doing something. Uh, because they got lucky, you know. But the fact that someone, you know, it's like when you turn on—if you ever can, kind like, of can't sleep and you turn on an infomercial—and you see some guy with like two blondes under each in arm in front of an a, audience, in front of an audience, and a Bentley and a, his big house. And it's probably not really his Bentley or his house, but whatever, or his business, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> right? You know. But but that's you know that that is a very well understood concept. Like somebody and someone just like you, by the way, someone he an ordinary guy who now doesn't have to work. And gee, we used to have to worry about bills. Bob but tell him we bought uh, Joe's system and now you know flipped real estate and we got we're making fifty thousand dollars a week, you know and you know and so that's that's what really hooks people is this sort of if they did it, then I can do it too. You know, and- the
4: logic of that always annoys me because I always want to say to the people, if this was so lucrative, why aren't you doing it and why are you selling the how to? You know, I, I get those when newsletters, hey, why don't you just raise some capital from friends and family and, and manage money this way if it's so lucrative? But it turns out the value is in selling it to suckers, not actually the underlying. Although that said, Gill ended up, hey, $3 million ain't nothing. It's a, a reasonable amount of money, even before taxes. And he still has what's the latest filing Um in uh, terms of GameStop stock, what does he own? It's around a well, hundred plus bucks as we're recording this, yeah. down from four sixty,
1: but still, he's got five or ten million dollars worth of stock. No, right? maybe more than that. No, oh, in, really? in, in the tens, in the tens of millions, I think. Oh, you really? know, because it was thirty million as of April twenty twenty one when it had fallen quite a bit. So, I, I'd have to look it up, but I mean, it's it's in the tens of millions. So he's he's a rich man. I mean, I don't know if he sold or not. You know, he. And by the way, just to say, like, you know, there there are people who sort of are out there you're know, using social proof for manipulation. I don't think that he ever manipulated anyone, you know. He was actually investigated personally. of right, right. well, the only people investigated in this whole thing and and totally I, cleared, right? And totally cleared he, and he and did I, you know, he's
4: not only a CFA, he worked for a brokerage firm and insurance company in his career, yeah. I think. So so he understood compliance. He understood what he could and couldn't say. If you look at all of his postings, he just showed his hey, here's where this is today. There was no let's stick it to the man, let's execute a squeeze. Let's do It was just basically, I love the phrase, I like the stock.
1: And you know, if he had wanted, so you, you had Elon Musk come into this and, and other people and a lot of opportunists come into this. If he had said on that Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or any point thereafter, shown up and had a, a screenshot of his E-Trade account and said, I, now I own deep out of the money options in XYZ company everyone would have jumped into XYZ Company. Right. He would have made 100 times his money. He, he, he Although he could, that would have been investigated. Maybe that would have been investigated, but it probably would have been okay because he's not saying, hey, buy it. He's, right. just, he's just He's, showing he's legitimately it. showing, saying, <laughs> oh, yeah, I actually did own it. All I did was tell people that I owned it, and and he would have been able, allowed Which to Which we it. see
4: on TV every day. People go on Bloomberg
1: and CNBC, and they say, this is why we own this stock. There's nothing illegal about that. Nope, and I don't think it would have been illegal in his case either. Maybe he would have faced some slap on the wrist, but he could have made hundreds of millions of dollars. He could have made he 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 could have been one of the you know maybe not the wealthiest people in America, but he could have been you know close to you know a billionaire. I think just by doing really? that a few times. Wow. Just think about it, right? I mean, just think. Th- pick some option in some obscure company, and what x of your money? You know, he, he already had fifty million dollars in you know in value. You know, if if you had made. Just, just, roll your, that, just roll that. Multiply that. Into that multiply that by fifty twice. Right. And tell me what x number you get too to. Too hard. Right. Yeah. Right. Even twenty x gets yeah. you to a
4: billion. Yeah. Uh, the only issue would be does the SEC step in and halt the stock and prevent this
1: from? Well, but, but, a but it down. wouldn't. It just would have been the truth. I own the stock, and then right. just just the the reaction alone, and you know that's the you know it's the less. Ex- Successfully is that what people are doing every day on Mm -hmm. on TikTok? You know, is saying I bought the stock and I think are they still doing
4: it on TikTok? I kind of got the sense that the finance influencers on TikTok. I I love the couple. We only (laughs) only buy stocks that go up. If you know, it's the old Will Rogers joke. If they don't go up, don't buy them. That's that's how we support our lifestyle. I, I kind of have got given the sense that here at the end of the first half of 2022, with the market down 20-plus percent, uh, those influencers aren't quite as influential as they previously were.
1: Yeah, I think the shine has come off a little bit uh, from the bad financial advice. But, you know, it just never goes out of style and it comes back again and again. But, yeah, it, they definitely have um, have become less influential. Of course, like anytime like, I, I put something – even if it has nothing to do with crypto, I mean, if you have this, like you put something on Twitter and then like somebody replies to you, says, oh, I'm uh, investing with, so," it just looks some normal looking person's picture. I'm investing with so-and-so, my crypto coach. Like, you know, there's just so much That's spam, just bot you know. spam, right. Yeah,
4: And I, you know, you should, if you don't report and block those, you're, you're doing
1: a doing. Oh, I do. I do every time.
0: So yeah. I, I constantly do that. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting, you can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers.
3: Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time.
2: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Before we get to our favorite questions, my last question. So, the meme stocks, they're down about 50, 60% since the peak, some even worse. Are we done with meme stocks or is this just going to be yet another one of those
1: things that sort of cycle in and out of favor? So I think the meme stocks have chewed up a lot of people's wealth and Mm -hmm. enthusiasm for the market. So I think it's just going to be, you're having kind of, you know, echoes of what you had originally. I don't think that you could have what you had originally, but you've had you've had some really dumb stuff go up. Like you had uh, Redbox Entertainment, the people who have those, <laughs> right, they write the sell the DVDs, right? right it DVD. was being bought for the equivalent of sixty four cents, and it went up to fifteen dollars just because I don't know why, you know, right? I mean, right. and stuff like that. Well, they uh, obviously Revlon, thought right? someone else would come along and pay more, right? Right, it's the greater fool theory to some extent, but it's also like, LOL, this thing is going up, I'm going to buy it. You, and this serious person on TV said I shouldn't buy it because it's worth a fraction of it. let show him. So I'm going to show him, and I'm going to buy more. And and yeah, and, and Revlon and satis- is
4: another one. You mentioned Revlon. That's a kind of crazy story because they were. Was this before or after they filed for bankruptcy? After, after. Uh, like like Hertz. That's yeah. just oh, so
1: all the equity holders are going to zero. How do I get me some of that? Right. I mean, it just it just boggles the mind, right? So you know, there's no. I mean. I think the only way to explain it, I mean, obviously there are people who are not well informed, but I think there are people who are just nihilistic, who are like, haha, look what I'm doing. I'm burning up my money. Or I'm doing really? this thing where I should... I think so. I think psychologically that's like that's also one outgrowth of the pandemic, is people are just saying, look at me, I'm I'm doing this totally dangerous thing, and maybe some of them are getting out. So huh. I, a lot of the people I spoke with who were involved in this were more sort of the savvy playing the greater fool. I see this thing going up and I think I'm going to be able to hop and they mainly did so, succeed. So
4: I I was looking at this entire Reddit Wall Street Bets saga from from GameStop to AMC to Hertz and now Revlon as just a massive combination of bored millennials stuck at home with free trading and a giant Dunning-Kruger overlay meaning people are unaware of their own lack of skills. And what you're suggesting is there's a different dimension to this that burn the whole thing down. What the hell? This, this isn't working. This experiment isn't working out here in America. Just let it all burn. Is that what you're suggesting? That,
1: that is part of it. That definitely is part of it for some of the people involved, uh, for sure. And they, they don't mind making money in the process it's like the George Costanza, like just do the opposite of what, right? <laughs> right? I mean, And that's what like, oh, the the smart person on TV, the Spencer Jacob at the Wall Street Journal said, don't do that. I mean, I'll write an article like pointing out, for example, I wrote an article uh, about crypto and meme stocks, saying like this, some people have a, a $500,000 price target for AMC, or I don't know, how many, like a million dollar price target for Bitcoin. And um, I wrote about a- It's only 50X Right
4: from here, it's not unthinkable.
3: Well, yeah. And uh, it's harder
4: from 20,000 than it
1: is from 20, but still yeah. Um but I the the thing that you have to realize and Vic, uh, I'm going to give credit to uh, to Victor Hagani of Elm Wealth who who pointed this out. I mean, I it's kind of common sense, but he he actually studied, you know, and kind of ran the numbers and and did scenarios. And he said, "If you are really sure, if you really have a high degree of confidence, uh, I just went back to the the Kelly betting criteria. Right, that's something. This is, is a sports betting, right? Yeah, exactly. This is a study. I love this part of the book. Yeah, and so if you if you really really pretty confident in something happening, like you know you might be wrong, but let's say you really are confident, you have reason to think you're confident. You don't bet all your wealth. These these people are going all in. People are like, I mortgage my house, I'm out in the street, but I still am keeping my AMC because it's going to 500k. Like, if it's going to 500k, how many what do you need? Two shares, right? Two shares of, of AMC for twenty six bucks, and then if you're right, then you're rich, and if you're wrong, who cares? And there's not a hundred percent chance that you're right, then you know you, you didn't lose a lot of money, and so it's like it's the sixty
4: percent 50 bet. Uh, people end up going, even knowing it's a loaded coin. In the, I, I don't know if this is the same yeah, study. Yeah, 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 yeah. So even though it's a loaded coin. I think uh, if if I they'll lose money, my college math recollection is that you should never bet more than like four percent of your stake because you could have a run of even with a weighted coin of like eight, 10 in a row and then you're busted. Even with a 60, 40 coin, you would think, how can I lose money? The, The vast majority of people completely go broke with that.
1: Yeah, it's which is crazy. Yeah, and there there have been a lot of studies showing that. But and, and this specifically, so I wrote that you know, which I thought was like a kind of a, a smart thing to point out to to readers. It's is common a common sense thing. So you get the hate, and email. I get the, I get the hate mail. Screw you! I'm still holding. I'm all in. Like, okay, I I just gave you. I, I love mean, you. Those don't have to. You know, but by, by the way,
4: uh, over the years, I have learned that the more vociferous the hate mail, the more correct I am, because yeah. the reason people are so upset, is you're challenging a fundamental belief system that they haven't thought through, and you're essentially, I don't wanna say challenging their manhood, but you're putting a fundamental principle that they adhere to um, at risk, and it's confusing, and their own cognitive dissonance causes them to lash out. Maybe cognitive dissonance is the wrong word, but the angrier they get, it means you're you're getting closer and closer to totally identifying a truth that is very uncomfortable to them. And I get these like and you're a shill.
1: Well, you know what? I gave up a very lucrative job on on Wall Street we to become a financial about.
4: journalist. You, you started know, out yeah. at Credit Suisse. You yep. were an analyst, and at one point, you were head of EM research, right?
1: Yep. So, for you to do be a reporter at the Wall Street Journal,
4: you're taking a pay cut.
1: Oh yeah, let's. <laughs> I try not to think about that uh, whenever like the kids need braces and so stuff it's like not that. Just, but yeah, for sure, it's not just that you're a shill. You're just a bad shill. You, right. You, exactly. What kind of the, <laughs> what kind of a dummy makes a financial decision like right. that? You're not going to. Right. I mean,
4: so, so. So let's let's um before we jump to our favorite questions, there was one other study you mentioned that I have to talk about because I just love this. So the sp- sports gambling, when people tweet their sports forecasts about what's going to happen, the more specific they are and the more wrong they are, the more followers they seem to get. Right. And the more specific, even if they're wrong, they generate more Twitter followers, but people who put out these thoughtful, nuanced forecasts that turn out to be right, it doesn't generate that buzz that, that the certitude
1: generates, even if wrong. And that's a really important thing to understand about finance and life generally. And is social people, media. And social media. And then I'll, I'll just go one step further on that because- um, yeah, so basically yeah, the study shows that people who are less accurate but more confident uh, with just a lot of certitude get a lot more followers than the people who wound up being right. But in this algorithmically charged social media, you're not seeing both of those posts anymore, right? right. So you go on, on Reddit, which has a human algorithm. People upvote and downvote things. Right. Okay, so let's say, Barry, that you go on, uh, on Wall Street Bets and – you have a very measured, long, cerebral post about something uh, with some good information and insight. And then I go on there, and you say, and I put 5% of my portfolio into the stock. And then I go on there, and I say, I put 100% of my portfolio into the stock, all into out-of-the-money call options, mortgage my house, did all this crazy to stuff. The moon. To the moon. you know, rocket ships. I'm going to get a lot more attention. So now a third person goes on to there and says, well, I'm a young person who just to open up their first brokerage account. I hear Wall Street Bets is a place to go for advice. Not only, it's not like they're gonna see your advice and my advice. They're only gonna see my advice. They're not gonna see your advice. Because yours is not going to get upvoted. Yours is boring, and mine is exciting. And so mine gets upvoted. Mine is funny and gets upvoted, and yours is invisible. And right. so this that that is is different about social media today. That's like, you why know, people compare it to Yahoo Finance message boards. But I naively the, the, did, and this is different So did you do see that. But vote. you're
4: absolutely right. It, it, it's, it's not just that we're manipulated by algorithms. The algorithms are manipulating our own biology and psychology. And yes. so we were built for a different era, not this, right. not this era. So on that cheerful note, let's jump to our five favorite questions that we ask all of our
1: guests. Starting with, tell us what you've been streaming these days. What What's keeping you entertained? So I I'm, I'm, have never been a big TV watcher. And then during the pandemic, I guess I started more, kind of became more of like all a family, of yeah. Yeah, family social activity. But I'll, I'll only, except for, I'll watch a football game by myself, but I don't really watch things by myself. So I always try to like, if I can get I've got three sons, if I can get at least one of my sons and my wife to watch something with me, then I'll watch it. It's like a matter of negotiation. So the thing we just finished watching was Inventing Anna. Um, oh, really? Which, which uh, I I really liked. And I'm I'm always just fascinated by... She's com- kind of the
4: high-end grifter, yeah. the socialite.
1: Yeah, she's the... Anna Delvey is, uh, was her name, and she is her name. She's still alive. And she basically convinced all these wealthy people to sort of finance her luxurious lifestyle. And, you know, and, and she just... She was a fake heiress, you know, and and she almost got a bunch of money from some investment firms to buy a building and start a foundation and all this crazy stuff. And it's just it's just the kind of I, I'm really always been interested in in comment. I want to watch. Um, I want to watch Super Pumped. I want to watch We Crashed. I'm trying. I'm I lobbying just started hard.
4: We Crashed. It's fascinating. And I love the book Super Pumped by your colleague. So
1: I, I, that's definitely on my list to see. And then on the podcast, I'm more of a pot, go for a walk, listen to a podcast. I listen to your podcast a lot. You're, you're, I'm a big fan of of yours. Um, I like Shane Parrish, Dimitri Kofinas, Tim Ferriss. Um, there's a guy actually I heard on maybe just a few months back on Tim Ferriss, who I'm really into listening to now, Rich Roll, who's uh, into like doing ultra endurance sports. Uh, I just read his book after I hit, heard the podcast um, called Finding Ultra. It was just this fascinating story about how he – uh, you know, went from being uh, in alcohol. He still is an alcoholic, but reco- recover in recovery. Ultra marathon, or is that who? Yeah, like he did. He did five Ironmans in that's seven insane. days. You know, Just um, insane. Yeah, in his forties. So you know, he's one of the fittest men in America. And so I, I, I listen to a bunch of his podcasts now. So yeah, that's that's the kind of thing that I I listen to. And then I like hardcore history a lot. Mm-hmm. Dan Carlin. Um, yeah, that's
4: an interesting, definitely an interesting pod. Uh, let's talk about some of your mentors who helped to shape your career.
1: I feel like I should uh, mention uh, somebody at the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, and I've had a lot of great editors. I have a great editor now, uh, a great boss, I should say, uh, who runs the money and investing section. But I'm going to mention somebody who, at the when I spent a, a decade in, in finance, and my boss for the longest period of that time um, was a guy who really influenced me, taught me a lot. I I think I've worked harder for him, his name is John Conlon, Then anyone I've ever worked for I, I worked know' the so name hard for sure yeah he was uh, he became CEO of Robertson Stevens later Oh, uh, that's okay That's and uh, right. yeah mm-hmm. and he's, a, he's just a really good guy and just because now I, I manage people I manage a global team of, of columnists that hurt on the street and you know I think I I think about the good bosses that I've had and then you know very much about him about like what they were like with me and how to be how to be decent to people. How to get people excited? How to get make people really love coming into work? I mean, I loved working for him, and you know, I just always felt like he had my back, and I learned a lot from him. But I mean, I you know, there not that he's not smart. There were smarter people I, I encountered in my time in finance, but I, I just just loved you know kind of being you know under, under his wing. I was really sad, you know, when he left and then he went to go work for, you know, Ron Roberts and Stevens and was tempted to, to go there really just because of him. So, uh, so he, he had a big influence on me.
4: Huh. Really, really interesting. Uh, everybody's favorite question. Tell us uh, what some of your favorite books are and, and what are you reading right now?
1: So I just recently finished uh Bill Browder's book the second uh second book which uh, one called I just freezing, read... freezing order and uh, red notice was his first book. Uh uh-huh. um, I actually cuz I was I worked in emerging markets I knew Bill a very little bit he's uh, an interesting when he guy. was uh, he he's a little older than me but he, so he got started a few years before me in this wild east uh, of eastern Europe. He was this was before he founded his firm Hermitage but he his book is uh a very important book to read now. A very entertaining book. Both of those books, but especially "Freezing Order." You don't have to read the first one if you read the second one right. about the the torture and murder of his lawyer uh, Sergei Magnitsky. The Magnitsky laws that he's passed to sort of seize ill-gotten gains from human rights abusers around the world, not just in Russia. And this guy is he, he is such a brave man. Um, you know, people have been been murdered by Vladimir Putin for less, and he's an outspoken advocate. For for justice in 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 Russia and it, basically he just shows you what Vladimir Putin's Russia is, which is a it's a mafia state, with, thugocracy, uh, the with, 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 thugocracy with nuclear weapons and poison right. and in, acts it, with impunity around the world. I highly recommend that book.
4: If Red Notice wasn't a nonfiction book, it wouldn't get published as just too red. Yeah, if it was a novel, it would be. This is too ridiculous. Yeah, I I don't think you've had him on your show. You, you He's should. He's coming up. We have a book for later this okay, year. Okay, great. So yeah, I'm plowing through the new book,
1: which is you know horrifying. It's it is horrifying. It's he is he is a brave brave guy. Yeah, to say say the least. Any any other books you want to mention? Um, so I read. Well, a, you mentioned I read, Bad read, Blood. Well, bad blood is a great 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 book I mean another you, book yeah. that's um, nonfiction. I, I read a I read a book um recently by one of your recent guests um about Peter Thiel, uh, the contrarian by Max chaff yes. which I really I interesting. like that book a lot really that's interesting a, that, I enjoyed that also yeah I highly recommend that book um you know such I read an a interesting th- character totally uh and and such a complicated character you yeah know? yeah um so yeah I read a lot of things I, I have a lot of you know friends and colleagues that uh that, write, that books. write books and so <laughs> I wound up reading You know, I I feel like I have to read them, and so I read a lot of those. But I read a lot of history and biography too. Yeah, that that sounds really interesting.
4: Um, What sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad interested in a career in either finance or journalism?
1: Well, I'll I'll give you finance. Um, The way that I got into finance was totally by accident. I was gonna, um, you know, my I I got uh, an application. To a program at Columbia University that was not a finance program, um, and I got it by accident, mentioned it to my undergraduate advisor, who still she she still, she still teaches, Carol Savitz, she still is on faculty at MIT, and she told me, like, oh, yeah, I went there, and uh, you should do that. She kind of saw that I probably shouldn't be an academic as I was planning on being. I didn't really have the, the kind of temperament for it, and uh, first or second day at this program at Columbia University, um, I met a kid who's now a 56-year-old kid who told me he had been an investment banker and I was like I, you know I just didn't my parents were immigrants here and there their 20s nobody we knew was on wall right. street and I, I was like excuse my ignorance what's an investment bank <laughs> like you know I have heard the word but I just can you just explain to me like a dummy what it is and but I was also very anxious about money you know if you if, if your parents come here with, sure. with nothing you that tends to to be the case and um he's Told, the first thing he told me was how much he made, which was the all that got me right away. Eye popping, yeah, right. eye popping in the '80s. You know, for working for Bankers Trust, and I said, "How do I do that?" And he said, "Well, you know, you're I I yes, was bilingual in Hungarian and Hungarian. I knew I had studied German and Russian." And he said, "They're going to privatize everything in Eastern Europe. The Iron Curtain has fallen. You know, you're, you 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 go there, you're right gonna, there. They'll hire you. They're going to privatize everything. So just take as many finance classes as you can at Columbia Business School. You're allowed to in accounting." And then you'll get hired. And he was right. And I like the finance classes. I like finance. I find finance interesting. I never thought that I would. And I, I really was. I'm I'm still fascinated by it. I think it's the most fascinating thing. It's, it's like a, it's like my sports. You know, like just watching what happens. All these people, sort of this 24/7, 365 day a year struggle over money and and people, uh, computing power and brains and all this stuff. And so. I liked it, but the entire time that I worked in an investment bank, and I was—I think I was the youngest managing director in the equity department in my my bank. Eventually, you know, I felt like I'm just pinching myself. This can't. This the amount of money that they're paying—they're paying me like four or five times what my professors, you know, who are much smarter than me, <laughs> were earning. Right. Like this Something makes no is sense. wrong here. Right? And uh, I always like like okay, I'll be uh, maybe one more year, and so and then I in the end I, I quit to become a writer and. Um, you know, which is I'm glad that I that I, I did it that way because I think people. Here's the lesson, okay? So that's that's the attitude you should have is like this is just totally unrealistic. The amount of money you're being paid if you're a young person in finance, if you want to need to make money or want to make money or want to have that cushion, treat it like a cushion. Don't go out and you know be frugal. Treat it like a stupid, stupid thing that you're being paid so much because it is stupid. You're being paid so much, and and don't get your ego wrapped up in it because I saw so many people I used to work with. Eventually, you know, just have to go to a less prestigious, less lucrative job, and it kind of really, really hurt them, their egos, and don't ever think that you deserve that amount of, of money, you know. And a little humility goes a long way. And and just and that that money gives you freedom, you know. So so use it. I I use the freedom to, to do this dumb to thing, to do doing doing really now, you know, to which do I've do. been doing for almost twenty years now, and I'm I'm glad I did. It worked out. I'm glad it was in that order. You know, I mean.
4: And our final question What do you know about the world of finance and investing today
1: you wish you knew 30 years or so ago when you were first getting started? You know, I, I wish that I had just agonized over things a bit less in terms of investing my own money. Um, you have a colleague, Nick Bajuli, who wrote a, a yep. great book recently. Just keep buying. Just keep buying. And that—that that is really. The mantra, especially when you're in your 20s and 30s and stuff like that. It's, it's unthinkable to say. when you're that age. And by the way, Nick is barely 30. I don't even think he's 30 yet, which is
4: astonishing. How how much wisdom that book has for someone as young as him.
1: I wish that I had had that wisdom at you know because I mean, I've done fine. But if I had just basically just done ex- like literally those three words, just keep buying, don't worry about it, don't keep checking, don't worry. You know, there have been what four bear markets since I've uh, you know been in. Like old enough to, to, invest, yeah. or had any money to invest. And if this, if you're counting this as the fourth one, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 2008, nine and 90 2020, and, 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 and then, this. Yeah. And, and then the, yeah. And, and five, you, you had okay. a couple of
4: pullbacks in the yeah. 90s, but nothing. But I mean, I was of.
1: always like, you know, trying to handicap things and worry about right. things I just really shouldn't have. You know, I mean, that's, you know, you're always trying to be too over smart. The decades. Yeah. Totally. So that's, that's very good advice. Huh. Really, really good stuff.
4: We have been speaking with Spencer Jacob, Wall Street Journal reporter and editor and author of the book, which I have to get signed, The Revolution That Wasn't, GameStop, Reddit, and the Fleecing of Small Investors. If you enjoy this conversation, well, you can check out any of the previous 400 or so we've done over the past eight years. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at... MIB podcast at Bloomberg.net. Sign up for my daily reading list at com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the craft staff that helps put these conversations together each week. Sarah Livney is my audio engineer. Atika Valbrunn is my project manager. Sean Russo is my head of research. Paris Wald is my producer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on
3: Bloomberg Radio.
2: You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through.